Blog Talk Radio.
foraging for edible wild plants in Texas. Now, I know this this might seem like a different kind of uh, program than what we normally do, firearms and history and stuff like that, but it's really not because part of uh, part of being a leader in your community and, a, and especially a leader if something happens is being able to keep yourself alive, right? You need to be alive to be a leader. I've always thought that that was a very true uh, statement. Uh, at least an active leader, right? You can be dead and you can be uh, uh, a martyr or an icon and be a leader, but you need to be alive to be an active leader, especially in your community. And the way you're going to do that is by keeping yourself fed. And uh, there are thousands of edible wild plants uh, out across the nation that you can eat and that are actually good for you. Uh, and we're going to be talking about those in uh, just a minute. But before then, I'd like to talk uh, about uh, the uh, the first thing I want to talk about is a shortage in ammunition. <clears throat> Obviously, with uh, a lot of stuff that's gone on, it's caused a lot of folks to buy ammunition, trying to stockpile ammunition, and uh, it's the same thing that happens anytime there's any kind of a scare. You know, people say, "Oh man, I've got to better get it now," and the stores they only carry what they would what they would normally sell in a day or a week, right? So they're not <laughs> none of them are are set up, nor is their supply channel set up, to handle what's been going on lately. And that's been a mad rush in all the ammunition. <laughs> and uh, the reason that this affects us, or affects that Appleseed anyway, because most of you guys are regular listeners to the show, uh, most of you have ammunition, and you've bought it, and you've stockpiled it deep, and you've, you've, you've got it ready, because that's what a, that's what a uh, I don't want to call it a normal, that's what a normal person does. Because they look at the things that they may possibly need in the future, and uh, and they keep those uh, in stock for use. Well, the, what it's affecting are the people that want to go to Apple Seeds. I've had, uh, uh, I believe now, looking at my emails, I just got uh, two more. I've had six people email me in the last few days saying, "Hey, I want to come to an Apple Seed, but uh, I, but I don't know where to get any ammunition." and uh, can we buy it from you when we get there? And I sent him back. When this first happened about a week ago, I sent him back a, a letter saying, no, no, listen, just go to the you know the nearest Walmart or Academy and you know grab yourself a, you know, a box of 550 there. And they replied back, well, then nobody has any. No, none of the Academies or Walmarts have any. I thought, certainly that can't be true. So I took a spin through town, and uh, this is in Temple, Texas. I took a spin through the town, and I couldn't find any ammunition anywhere uh, of just about any caliber. Uh, anything in 45 ACP, in uh, 9 millimeter, in uh, 556, 223, uh, <clears throat> 308, and, and and a good number of all the rest was all gone. You look at these shelves there at Academy and Walmart, and they just have just a few... Little things. Now, I did pick up some today anyway. I picked up some uh, 410 buckshot and uh, uh, and some 22 Winchester Magnum rifle ammunition. And uh, I didn't find anything anywhere. I, I did find, I got two boxes, two old boxes, old cardboard boxes of 50 rounds from a welding supply shop that I don't know. I don't know why they sell it there. I don't even know if they're, if they're supposed to be selling it there, but they did. And I bought uh, the two boxes that they had there. Uh, other than that, 
I'm going to have to rely on the stockpile that I have in order to keep the apple seeds going, I guess. Uh, and uh, at 500 rounds for an apple seed, I'm only going to be able to do about uh, maybe about 20 people before I run out. So what I was asking people to do, I put a post up on the Texas board uh, on the forum, is if you guys can start uh, uh, scouring the stores, finding uh, places where uh, where people can purchase it locally, and then post that. If you want to, we can make it a post on someone on a board that's accessible to everyone if you want. And then uh, also be looking online and find uh, any of the online suppliers that still have 22 uh, ammunition so that we can start sending we can send this information back to the people who are going to be writing and asking about it because, like I said, I couldn't find any any regular 22 uh, long rifle ammunition today uh, uh, on my round last week or today. And we're going to have to have 22 long rifle ammunition uh, on hand in order to run these shows. So... <clears throat> If you guys could uh, take a look and start posting on places where they can be found locally in stores and online. And if you want to, uh, especially you instructors, uh, if you've got some extra cash, go ahead and purchase it. And then uh, and then when people come to the event, you can, uh, how do I say this? I don't, I don't know if you can sell it to them. And I guess you can. You can have a private sale for ammunition between two people. You can sell it to the people that, that attend, and that way... Uh, uh, you'll have some uh, on hand to sell to them. And I don't know if this is everywhere in the nation, but I'm assuming that it is. Can't just be here in Texas. It must be everywhere because I've heard of ammunition shortages everywhere. <clears throat> so take a uh, take a spin through your, through your town. Uh, find a 22 long rifle ammunition. Pick it up. Pick up any other ammunition that you need while you're there because if this keeps going, then... Uh, uh, then better for you to have some than not. And then uh, uh, post post it online where you can find it, and then any of the online ammunition uh, sales, be sure to post that too, because if we need to, we'll have to start making uh, purchases of, on, of ammunition online and having it shipped to the, uh, to the event location so that we can have some available. Because people aren't going to come if they don't, if they can't shoot, right? You know that's what we're doing, and uh, and most of us have a, a, a large cache of 22 long rifle ammunition. But like I said, I, even me, I only have enough to do, you know, one 25 person apple seed, right? Uh, so so please uh, please take a look at ammunition in your area, and uh, and then post on that on the forum. Uh, the other thing I wanted to uh, to remind folks about is that you have a duty to talk to your senators and congressmen, talk to your reps and let them know how you feel about the things that are going on and what you would like them to do as your as your representative, what you want them to know that you want them to do because uh, maybe they don't know, all right? Maybe they just have no idea on what they're supposed to do. So I'd like for you to let them know, and even you guys in your uh, in the areas that uh, uh, that might be uh, having a different letter, like maybe a Democratic letter or something in front of it. 
the uh, the congressmen and reps of all letters need to know. Uh, I'm sure that uh, the Democratic uh, uh, representatives, I'm sure that they will remember what happened when uh, when they crossed the line on this uh, a few years ago, right? They, it ended up dumping out a whole slew of them. So uh, I'm sure that uh, with just a little remembrance, they will be glad to uh, to listen to what you have to say about this. But nobody's going to be able to, to do anything if you don't call and talk to them. If you don't call them or you write them an email or you send them a paper letter, all right? Now, the most uh, important thing, the, most, the, the one they're going to read the most, are going to be the paper letters. That's the people that... They care enough that they wrote out a letter, put a stamp to it, and they sent it in, okay? <clears throat> but make sure that you're contacting them, that you're talking to the – you won't talk to your representative usually, but you're going to talk to the secretary, and you're going to let them know what it is that you want your representative to do for you. I told mine that <clears throat> that while I thought that the things that he had been saying he was going to do were good, and that I fully supported him in his office and, and would be glad to do anything I could to help him or assist him in any way, that any type of uh, – that that for him not to oppose the all of the new craziness with uh, ammunition and firearms and magazines and changing the rules in uh, uh, in the uh, – uh, the Congressional and Senate rules, uh, by him not opposing those, that was a deal-breaker. That that while I appreciate everything else he did, that that by itself would be a deal-breaker, and that uh, I promised to not vote for him in the next election and then take my families and neighbors and stuff with me to not vote for him, okay? That's the most you guys can do, and uh, and it's an important thing. So make sure that you remember to do this, to contact your representatives and let them know. Uh, we'd like to take the first few minutes out of the show, as we usually do, to thank our local crews, uh, the folks that that are donating their time, that are putting in the effort at Appleseed, uh, to thank our local crews for the work that they're doing. And I'd like to thank uh, Larry Coonrad, uh, Reliable, again, because, my gosh, every time I open the door to an event in Davila, he's right there. He's right there. Matter of fact, he's there before I open the door. And uh, and he's usually brought his grandsons with him to uh, to help do setup, and he doesn't leave until everything is put away. And that's a big help to me. And I want to thank uh, Sam D. You guys know that uh, that Sam D. Uh, and the Appleseed Project uh, parted ways a while back. I'm not going to discuss that. You can talk to Sam D. about that. But uh, I'll tell you that uh, that he did not leave Rifleman Radio. He's here still every week. Well, if I'm here, he's here. Even if I'm not here, he's probably still here. Because uh, he's still doing the job as uh, my co-host and a call screener, and uh, so every time the show is on the air, CMD's on the air too. 
and it'd be hard for me to do the show without it. So my thanks go to him too. If you want to call in, I'd like to for you guys to to, to take the time to thank uh, one of your local crew crew members in the Apple Seed Project and let them hear your vo- voice saying their name and uh, let them get some appreciation out of it. You can do that by dialing 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. And, uh, and then let Sam know what you want to say. We'll, we'll put you on the air. Uh, all right, we've got uh, a... Uh, We've got one of the listeners who has an offer for the rest of you listeners. We're going to put uh, put her on the air and see what she has to say. Uh, Zoe Gordon, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Um, I have some T-shirts that I would like to give away. They are All free, right. including postage. They have on them an MIA poem. I was a guest of... Veterans of Foreign Wars, post 3848. And while I was there, um, we took a picture around the MIA table, and it was hallowed ground. And it moved me so much that I wrote a poem, and it's called The MIA Table. This, when it is worn and shown, it reminds people that we do not forget our fallen, we do not forget our missing until they are all brought home and accounted for. So if you would like to have one of these T-shirts, if you would be kind enough to email me, and I will spell out my name. Okay, what's your email, Zoe? Zoe Gordon, Z-O-E-G-O-R-D-O-N 41 at yahoo.com. Will I repeat it? Yeah, go right ahead. I'm typing it into the chat room, too, but go ahead and repeat it. Zoe, Z-O-E, Gordon, G-O-R-D-O-N, 41, at yahoo.com. They are free, completely free, to those that have served their country and those that support the military, which I am one. Well, that's it I in a nutshell. I appreciate that. Zoe, because, you know, there's uh, I don't know that I can think of a much worse hell than than to go somewhere uh, overseas serving your nation and then to become one of the disappeared uh, and then for your country to pull out and uh, and leave and basically that's it. That's it. You know, there's no more. Wherever you are, that's where you are. And you're going to you're going to live and die wherever it is, and uh, and in many cases, it's uh, there's not a living person, but there are remains that need to be brought home. We need them to come home, and we need people. While not to they live in our this. memory, they are not missing, they are not lost, they are not dead, they are loved and cherished until we can bring them home, and put them to sleep in their own earth that has borne them, and their own land. That is how I see it. Um, exactly. Everybody looks on things differently, but surely um, people need to be reminded that not all of our young men and women have been brought home. 
And if you wear these T-shirts, I hope it will remind people. That is all I'm seeking to do, is to remind them. All right. Could I read the poem? Well, thank you very much, uh, Ms. Gordon. And listen, uh, you're welcome to call back any time, okay? Bless you and thank you. All right, thank you, ma'am. May your day be nice and your evenings be good. Thank you very much. God bless you and yours, ma'am. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay, so uh so there it is. It is uh it's a free shirt and and it's not just a free shirt, it's a free shirt with an important message on it, and that is don't forget about the men and women who have gone overseas and uh, and stood in ranks to protect the nation and in many cases and a great many cases didn't come home at all, alive or dead and uh and we don't want to forget about those folks. There's a lot of stuff that goes on in our lives. There's a lot of stuff that we have to deal with every single day. And it seems like it seems like we don't have room for anything else, anything else to think about or remember. This is a pretty important, uh, pretty important thing to remember. All right, I put the uh, I put the address in the chat, and uh, I'll give it out again. It's Zoe Gordon. Z-O-E-G-O-R-D-O-N-41 at yahoo.com. Send her an email. She said she'll send you, she'll send you a shirt. And uh, and that's about as good as you can get a deal on that. <clears throat> All right. Uh, we've got uh, our guest on, ready to go. So we're going to go ahead and jump straight into that. We have uh, Dr. Mark Merriweather Vorderbruggen and... Uh, he is a uh, a nationally renowned expert on edible wild plants, and uh, we're lucky to have him on the show. Welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Merriweather. Hi, Michael. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, you you uh, tell us uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to be uh, one of the nation's uh, top authorities on foraging and edible wild plants, uh, because when I was when I was doing research on you and the stuff that you're doing, I I saw your name on on articles all over the web. But 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 how did you get to be where you are now? Uh, well, that's a easy enough story to answer. Really, my parents were responsible for planting that seed. I always <laughs> love that one. Okay, sorry, I'm working that again. That's good. They were both, they were both children of the Great Depression, uh, growing up in a, the small farming communities up in central Minnesota, and they were absolutely dirt poor. One of the ways their families got through uh, those really horrible times were through all the abundant wild plants around them that were edible. And even growing up, uh, we continued to be dirt poor, which helped me a lot in learning the wild edibles. It was kind of a you know, eat or not sort of thing going on. So we knew every berry bush and fruit tree and nut tree and everything all around us, the, the the whole, all the fields and forests and streams were our garden. Well, and that's one of the things that I wanted, I wanted people to uh, to get, and that is that uh, that the reason that your folks started is because they were in the middle of the Great Depression and they couldn't get. Uh, normally, I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of stuff that they would have gone to the store and bought or sure. to the market or whatever. But they couldn't because there wasn't a, there wasn't 
stuff to get, and there was no money to get it with. So, so instead, they made up the difference by uh, by foraging and getting plants that uh, that were local to them and that that they could use. And and that is an important lesson because you know it, there is never there is no guarantee that we won't ever be in the same place that we that we won't be in a Great Depression or, or anything like that. We certainly, it could be very easy to get there. And if you get there, you're not going to be able to go online and uh, click on uh, uh, Meriwether Forages, Texas to get the information. You better start You better start learning it now. Now, I know that you're a, I know you're a scientist working for a major company by day, but, yep. but what actually got you started in uh, identifying and teaching about edible wild plants. Now I know that you, I know you said you had the background in it from your folks, but what what actually got you started in it? Because I'm, I imagine if you're like everybody else, you didn't just start doing this. I mean, all, no. all of a sudden at once. No, I, I kind of stumbled into it. Uh, originally, I actually had a blog here in Houston about hiking and kayaking and kind of outdoor sports because I do a lot of that too everything, camping, packing, and every so often I'd post a thing about a plant, an edible plant, and one day uh, the head of education at the Houston Arboretum was looking for new ideas to bring classes at the Arboretum there. He decided to look up wild edible plants. He found a few of my posts on it, contacted me, asked if I'd be interested in teaching, I said, sure, you know, get paid for walking around in the woods and eating stuff. Yeah, it sounds like a great job. So we, they had me give a class. They started out, uh, this was 2008. I did four classes that year, and the demand skyrocketed uh, to the point now where I'm teaching every month at the Houston Arboretum. They're begging me to do more classes. Plus, I also do private classes for groups, homeschooling groups, church groups, scout groups, just different groups of people, and I've traveled pretty much all over Texas doing that. Well, I, I so did notice that starting around 2008, that uh, that your presence, uh, at least on the web, really started uh, really started blossoming out. Well, you live in Texas now, and uh, and you do your majority of your foraging in Texas. I know that you do it, go other places and do other things, but you do the majority of foraging in Texas, and you have a web page dedicated to foraging in Texas. So let's go ahead and let's let's talk about some of the most common Texas edible wild plants that uh, folks are going to be walking by every day without knowing it. That the plants that folks would, would most easily, they you could most easily direct them to without having to look at a quick picture of it or something, and, and they, could, they could go out tomorrow and put it on their table tomorrow. Well, the easiest thing for them to do is to go out and look at the grass in their yard. Uh, it always amuses me. All over Houston, there are these big billboards saying, you got dollar weed, we can get rid of it for you. Dollar weed <laughs> is a small, round weed. It's about the size of a 50-cent piece with a stem coming out from the center. And most people have it in their yards. And most people, for some reason, I don't know why, don't want it there. But it's actually a good nibble. If you get it when it's young, about the size of a nickel, it's still very tender. You can eat it just raw, throw it in your salads, things like that. I've also discovered that if you're into sauerkraut or kimchi, some of the fermented vegetables, you can throw some of the, the dollar weed in there or make the whole thing out of dollar weed, and you can have your own 
yard-based sauerkraut, which is pretty tasty. And then you get rid of the weeds, and then the homeowners association letters stop, and all that sort of thing too. So that's. <laughs> well, you know, you, you joke about that, but I, I don't know if I've ever seen a yard that didn't have dollar weed in it. Exactly, I know it's all over here. But over the years, I've talked to all my neighbors, and I'm, I'm kind of in charge of getting rid of their weeds, at least the edible ones. I'll come and take care of it and eat it. Uh, another well, one, if you, I'm yeah, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, another go ahead. one that I really like, especially this time of year, is curled dock. Uh, you'll find that more out in fields. It's a rosette sort of plant. It means it grows. Uh, the leaves come out of a, a center from the ground and spread out in a circle. The leaves can end up pretty large, about the size of a banana. They're fairly uh, spear-shaped with a ruffled edge. Uh, any farmer or rancher will know the curled dock in his, in his field. Yeah, that is a yeah. In the, later on in the spring, it'll form these tall stalks that will be coated with seeds. But right now, the leaves are excellent to eat. You can eat them raw. They have kind of a nice tangy sort of flavor. But over in well, what Poland... About, oh. What about the seeds? Because, you know, when I'm out in the field, I can grab a hold of the stalk and start pulling it, you know, from the, like to the middle of the stalk, below the seed head pulling it straight up to the top, and I can get a whole handful of those. Can you eat the seeds? You can, but you don't want to eat them straight off the plant like that. The reason being, they still have their brand coating. So imagine the world's most powerful brand muffin. Uh, if you eat, eat the seeds raw, it will have effects on your digestive tract. Okay, so, that- you, so you could do that then. If you, if you needed some brand, if you needed something to unplug it, then you could go ahead and just grab you a handful of those seeds and chew them. Yeah. The, it wouldn't be that pleasant. Uh, it'd be kind of like <laughs> you're eating like peanuts or popcorn where you get those little thin shell type things stuck in your mouth. But if right. you take the seeds and toast them, throw them in like a cast iron pan that's hot and just stir them around a bit, just brown them some, and then rub them between your hands. By toasting it, you'll do two things. You'll make that outer brand coating brittle, and so it breaks off really easily. And also by cooking the seeds, you make it easier for your body to digest it and get more of the nutrients out of them. So you just rub them between your hands in front of a fan and what they call willowing it. So the fan will blow away the the, the bran and the seeds will just fall into a bowl you have below you. And then you're good to go. At that point, you can boil it up like a porridge. You can eat it as is. You can grind it into a flour, all sorts of things. The flour will not have any gluten in it. It will not make springy, white, bubbly bread that we all, you know, the soft breads that we all like. You're stuck making things batter-type, things like pancakes, johnny cakes, or flatbreads like tortillas. But it has a really good flavor. If you've ever had freshly ground wheat, it kind of has that same sort of nutty flavor to it. Wow. That one's good. Now, but the, you said now, using the... Using the uh, the leaves that you can eat right. the leaves uh, just uh, just like greens, right? Right. You can eat them. Yeah. You can cook them like greens. My favorite thing I actually learned from a Polish friend over in Poland. It's considered a, a common vegetable, and they make this wonderful cream of sorrel soup. Uh, Curl dockets in the sorrel family, and her translation was cream of sorrel soup, and. She uses cream and wine and garlic and butter and onions and mushrooms and all this stuff and cooks it for hours. And wow. I find if you just dice it up and throw it in a can of cream of mushroom soup, 
and a little dash of wine, some garlic, and simmer it for a bit, it's almost the same. Which <laughs> she really gets mad at that because food should have all this grand labor into it. It's like, no, throw it in some soup, you're good to go. That's yeah, what I exactly. do. Exactly. Quick, well, easy. Listen, it, yeah, you know, I was going to say, the, the easier you value. make it for somebody to prepare it, the more likely they're going to eat it. Exactly. And it just gives a nice, neat, tangy sort of flavor to the, the otherwise fairly bland cream of mushroom soup. So well, I've eaten the curl dock in, uh, in green, in salads, but I, 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 I was looking at it. After talking to you the other day about this, we were I was looking at it thinking that uh, it would be it would be good fried with bacon. As everything I'm is, sorry. right? I'm sorry. Could you repeat that? It could. That it would be what? Take the take the leaves and fry the leaves uh, in a frying pan with bacon. Oh yeah, that, that's oh, one of my. I mean, that's almost everything tastes good with bacon. So. Yeah, that's one of my mom's secret things for making, especially the bitter greens like dandelion or chicory or sow thistle. You saute mm-hmm. them up in some bacon grease, and that helps neutralize the bitterness. Right. It's an excellent way of, of well, anything with bacon is excellent, but it's especially really good with the, the a lot of the foraged foods. The foraged foods are usually much stronger than what people are normally used to, and some people are turned off by that. But you put a little bacon grease on it, it the grease coats your so it actually reduces your ability to to taste the bitterness of the greens. So it makes it that now, much more good. I see curl. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, I see curl dock right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, is uh, but I don't remember seeing the dollar weed any time recently. Although I haven't really looked for it. Are these two plants that are uh, that are available this time of the year? Yeah, the dollar weed is available pretty much all year round. Sometimes a frost will knock it back for a few weeks, but what it's kind of nice about the frost is then all the dollar weed that comes up will be the nice young tender stuff. The curl right. dock is a winter plant here. Uh, another plant that's around right now this time of year that your listeners are probably walking by every day is sow thistle. It has the dandelion-looking flower on top, but the leaves have a prickly edge like a thistle. Now that and what is, was the first? What was the first? The the name of it? What kind of thistle? The sow thistle, kind of like pig. S O W. Sow okay. thistle. Sow thistle. Okay. Right. And a few things I do with that right now. If you get the the flowers before they ever open, uh, they have at the top. The flower has opened. It'll open three days in a row. Uh, when it opens, it'll close in the evening, and it'll have a, a point to it. And it'll do that three times, and then it'll form that, that Q-tip puff ball sort of thing that you blow on. But before it opens, it'll the top, instead of being pointy, it'll have like an inny belly button. So it'll be flat on top, the little flower butt. It's no bigger than a pencil eraser. But you collect those, and you just drop those in your pickle juice. And your leftover pickle juice, or just throw them in with your pickles, and let them soak there for about four to six weeks. And they are really good then after that. They're like pickled capers. And that's, that's wow. just the best. The leaves, ideally you want to get the leaves before the flowers have appeared, and it's just some biochemical stuff going on. When the flowers appear, the leaves become more bitter. It's the plant's way of protecting itself because it's, it's about to produce babies. Think of it as in mama bear mode. It's protecting itself. 
so it be, makes more bitter. But if you get the leaves before the flowers appear, you can take those. They're still going to be somewhat bitter. I find steaming them with like sweet baby carrots or throwing them with some fish when you're, you're cooking some fish or any number of things like that. But cooking them in some way, it softens up the spines. They no longer have the prickliness. You don't have to remove the spines. Just steaming them or otherwise cooking them will get rid of that. Uh, we'll soften them up, and they're really good. They make a, just a yeah, I was going to say that uh, just reaching your – if you've got uh, soft hands, just reaching down and, uh, and gathering the the leaves up with your bare hands might be a little bit uh, might be a little bit scary because they they've got some they've got a good set of thorns in them. At least when they get older, you know, when the the leaves get older. Yeah. But even then, once you steam them, they soften up and you can eat them. And even after the the flowers have appeared, you can still eat them. I recommend mixing them with something sweeter. Again, like a carrot or some other root, a beet, turnip, just something to to cut the bitterness some, but they are loaded with vitamins and minerals and all sorts of good things for you. Well, I, there were three large ones out in the uh, out to the west of my house and to and behind a barn along a fence line. And mm-hmm. I was looking at them yesterday, think, getting ready to chop them. And I said, okay, I'm not going to chop these. I'm going to first. I'm going to uh, to go in and check and find out what I can do with these before I start chopping them. And uh, and sure enough, you, there's recipes and everything else there for them. What else do we got? What else uh, are folks going to find uh, this time of year, you know, uh, very easily find and, and it's like kind of abundant and uh, and good to eat? All right. We're we're entering Eliagnus season, Eliagnus berries. Uh, a lot of home builders in the Houston area and the Austin area and the Dallas areas, when they built a house, uh, they – put in landscaping and the cheapest stuff they could find. And one of the plants that was real common is an Eliagnus bush. Uh, these have uh, kind of silver gray leaves with spots on them. And if you flip over the leaf, the bottom is gray with brown spots. This time of year, they're going to be producing berries. The berries are going to be kind of a silver gray with speckled red dots. Again, a little bigger than a pencil eraser, maybe like two pencil erasers together. They're kind of a, a football shape. And these things are really good. If you are familiar with the, the goji berry craze, all this diet food and these super berries, the wolf berries, these are the same thing. These are considered almost to be a superfood in the, the nutritional value that they pack, the vitamins and minerals and so forth. And most of the people in my neighborhood have them in front of their house right now. The landscapers put them in just because they were a cheap, fairly attractive, easy to care for plant. But the landscaping around, a lot of people don't realize how much of their landscape itself is actually edible. Okay. Can you can you spell that for folks? Sure. Uh, that is Eliagnus, E-L-A-E-A-G-N-U-S, Eliagnus. And I have it profiled on the foragingtexas.com. Uh, yeah, let's tell, them, let's tell them about the website so they can have that uh, up on their browser while they're while they're listening to the show. Uh, Dr. Merweather has a uh, a great web page. I mean, it's fantastic. Uh, and tell them where they can find that, Doc. Sure. It's just uh, www.foragingtexas.com, F-O-R-A-G-I-N-G-T-E-X-A-S.com, foragingtexas.com. 
And right there you'll find a list. It's over 160 plants listed on the left-hand side uh, with pictures. You click on any of the plants and you can, you'll see pictures of it and multiple pictures of each plant. One of the big problems with most wild little plant books is they'll have one little picture of the plant at one time during its, you know, one millisecond during its entire life. In mine, I put in lots of pictures from different times of the year, the flower, the leaf, the stem, everything I think will help you identify the plants. And you can also search by things like flower color, uh, find by environment, by the season, by the plant type, uh, by the color of the fruit, things like that. So I tried to make it as, as easily accessible and to help you find your stuff. So you say, I have this yellow flower. You click on flower yellow, and it'll bring up all the different things that have yellow flowers, and you can look through and see if you recognize what you have. Yes, it is It is a great page. Matter of fact, it was a lot better than what I expected it to be, and I was looking at it, and I wasn't I wasn't looking at it closely as I should, because I started asking him. I said, well, well do, is there a way to find out by by season, you know, like what kind of plants you can eat by certain seasons? And he's like, yeah, it's right there on the webpage. And, uh, that's really important too, because you know, because the plants look different. A lot of plants look different at different times of the year. And like you said, if if somebody's got a photograph, like a lot of the books on edible wild plants, they show you one picture. And like you said, it's a picture of that plant. And usually, it's like uh, uh, like when we we're doing uh, when I was doing television commercials and stuff, you would have the hero plant, or the hero picture, but the absolute perfect can of soup or whatever. That's exactly. the photograph that they take of it, and they put it in there. But it never looks like that when you find it out in the field. It's got some dead leaves on it. It's maybe it had didn't get enough water lately, or something, or or it's a different time of the season. And so you look at it, and you go, "No, there's no way that can be it. It doesn't look like this picture." Well, Doctor Merriweather has a lot of different photographs up on there posted, and a lot of uh, and the seasonal photographs and stuff too. So it's, it's really a great uh, a, a great website for you to use uh, when you're getting ready to go out and take a look, uh, you know, take a uh, a drive through the woods or uh, a walk through the woods. You're not going to drive through the woods, but, you know, drive somewhere and get you some uh, some edible wild plants. Listen, uh, we're going to, we're kind of jumping around on my, I mean, we're getting ready to jump around uh, on the, uh, on our outline here, but I'm going to, I'm going to ask you about this now anyway, and that is, when when people think about uh, gathering wild edible plants for sustenance, and I'm not talking about just going out and getting one so you can try it. I'm talking about getting enough of a plant that you can that that you can you could have a you know at least a, a side or or portion of a meal, or at least not be completely starving. When people think about that, they only think about uh, woods and you know and the wild rural areas and stuff like that. Well, that's absolutely not the case because you already talked about that about uh, some of the folks using plants for landscaping and stuff like that. And, and I know that you also teach classes in this, Doctor Mary. Whether you teach, uh, I know that you taught some uh, some classes for folks. There was one a recent one uh, in the, for folks in Montrose about plants in the city. Can you tell folks uh, a little bit about that? Because they don't have to live, you don't have to live rurally or live in the woods to, to be able to go out and get you a meal. 
No, that's true. In fact, some of the worst places to look for wild edible plants are in the deep woods. In the woods, yeah. <laughs> a little secret. Yeah, nothing, most, nothing will grow there. Yeah. There's too much shade. There's not enough stuff going on. There's there's going to be some things out there. But really, the the places where you find the highest diversity is in the places where the plants are in a constant state of chaos, where they're being mowed, where, where there's all sorts of stuff going on around them. And where the highest diversity is, it's where the most edible plants are going to be. AKA in urban environments, actually. You'll find a lot more plants in the just the alleyways and the yards and the abandoned lots and the neighbor who snuck out of their house in the middle of the night because they couldn't afford it and now their yard has gone to weeds, things like that. There's an amazing amount of stuff. Uh, I once, uh, actually, you can still find it. I have a, a, a walking tour, this place called Here Our Houston. And I just walked for half a mile down a, a city sidewalk in Houston and recorded all the plants I saw and talked about them. You can download the MP3 of it. And there was a dozen plants easily of all sorts of different weeds and trees and you know, any sort of, of type of thing. You have to stretch a little bit on what you would consider to be edible, like the tree lichen. The, the, the I don't want to call it a fungus because that's misleading, but most people think it's a fungus. But the lichen that's growing on trees, that's incredibly edible and can incredibly nutritious. It's hard to say that word. Plus, um, most of the weeds you're going to see, the dandelions, the dollar weed, the pony's foot, the shallow thistle, uh, any of these things, they're going to be edible. And then a lot of the shrubs will have edible berries. Uh, There's any time of the year, really, in Houston or Austin or Dallas or anywhere down south in particular, there could be anywhere from 30 to 60, I hate to use the term wild plants because they're in an urban environment, but they're the plants that man did not plant. And then you move over into the landscaping, and there's a whole bunch more. A lot of the hollies, the leaves can be used for tea. Not the berries themselves, but the, the leaves, like the American holly, the possum holly, the uh, daewoo holly, and, of course, yopon holly, one of my favorites. The yopon holly, a lot of the people down here in the south are probably familiar with it. and hate. But it's the only naturally occurring source of caffeine that grows in the area. The leaves of the yopon holly when dried, make a wonderful caffeinated tea. And it tastes just like the, the green tea you, you get from Lipton's. But it's a lot fresher. You know where it came from, and you didn't have to pay for it. Wow. Uh, far, yeah, yeah, a, see, that's, that's something I, I... You know, I've heard I've heard people talking about Yupong Holly and, and Yupong Holly tea and stuff like that. But I actually never... I, I had actually not really put the two together and, and I actually have a lot of it here. One of the things I was going to say real quick though when you were talking about uh, uh, shrubs and uh, bushes and berries is uh, and guys please be careful because shrubs and bushes and berries uh, more often than not uh, equals uh, you know equals poison so you've got to be kind of careful whenever you're whenever you're Harvesting, especially ornamentals, uh, and you know when I look at the berries on the Yopon holly, you know they've got that red color, which usually in nature is a is a danger signifier, right? There are no actual good rules of thumb that way. 
if you avoid eating red berries, you will miss out on some berries that are edible. Right, and, right. But, yeah, so, yeah, but you in general, make sure you, you know which ones. what you're eating. Yeah. So it's – like there's and, no uh, good rule of thumb. You really have I, to know. You were absolutely right when you were talking about uh, – uh, you know, we were talking just a second ago about the woods and stuff. If you go deep into the woods, especially if it's like, uh, I don't know, if you're in Texas, especially in East Texas and stuff like that, you get into the pine forests and stuff, I'm telling you, man, in in untended woods and in, in just uh, solid, thick woods and stuff, nothing lives in there because nothing grows in there. Nothing grows in there that you can eat unless you're one of the old Yule Gibbons uh, adherents and you're looking for some pine bark. Nothing, there's nothing good in there. And, uh, <laughs> things, and wood bark is one of them, actually. But, yeah, for the most right. part, you're going to find – the the places where you find the most plants, well, a in urban areas, but wherever two different environments come together. So that's, along, uh, that's what I was getting ready to say. Is is that right there? Did you have somebody like you were saying? You have somebody that's got a, if you've got a a, a yard that's all nice and clean and everything, but you get to the edge of that yard, if, it's, if it butts up to a vacant lot, that's the perfect place because it's mm-hmm. between the end of that person's property and when it gets into the woods where it's nothing but thick pine needles and, and overbearing shade, that is the environment, uh, you know, that you're going to find the, the, the good stuff to eat right there in that line. Exactly. The the environment there is so that the light is changing constantly, the amount of rain is changing. So there's a constant parade of plants coming through there, each, you know, adapted to a particular small environmental situation in that border there. The sunlight is a... Is necessary for plant life, especially the smaller, quick-growing, green-type plants, a lot of the the weeds, again, that are, are most nutritious. But too much sunlight, especially down here in Houston, it can burn everything to a crisp. So you want to get the areas that are a little bit shady, a little bit sunny, a little bit moist sometimes, sometimes a little dry. So where like fields meet woods, yards meet abandoned lots, yards meet drainage ditches, woods meet river, any of these places where you have two different types of environments coming together, that's where you're going to find the most food. Right. And uh, and I, I had to start laughing. The other day I was sitting in line at uh, Chick-fil-A in Temple, and uh, I probably shouldn't even say anything about that, where it was or who I was. But anyway, I was sitting there in line, and I started laughing because I'm thinking about, uh, I was thinking about the conversation you and I had had about food and stuff in cities, and they've got this huge hedgerow of uh, cactus. Now, it's not it's very seldom we ever find a cactus that's a thornless cactus. This is one of the ones that uh, that has, like, the least amount of spines on it that you can just about find. Big, thick heads with with very few thorns on it. And I'll t- I will tell you this. I did not take a leaf from a growing plant. I did not. I promise you. But there was uh, there were dozens of leaves that had already fallen and were laying on the ground underneath the cactus. So I picked up three of those and brought them home and uh, <laughs> and took the one head and and singed off uh, all of the the thorns and then I cut it into cubes and uh, and fried it. Cool. So, and I'm telling you, there's tons of cactus all over the cities. But don't start hacking your neighbor's cactus down. 
Actually, this is probably a good time to mention the laws in tech about foraging. Uh, All right, perfect, the laws yeah. In, yeah, the laws in every class, the first thing I tell people are the, the, the laws and ethics of foraging, that there are four things you need to respect with foraging. And the first is respect the law. The second is respect the land. The third is respect the plant. And the fourth is respect yourself. I want to say a few words about respecting the law. Here in Texas, it is illegal to take any plant material from land without the owner's permission. This goes back to the sheep and cattle wars when people were foraging their sheep on cattle land and cattle and sheep land and all the bad stuff that came from that. Right. So they find that no one can take anything from anywhere. You need the owner's permission. And those laws are still in the books today. Uh, so if you're like outside the – you broke the law, actually, there. Outside the wherever the, the restaurant is taking some of the stuff, technically you would have needed like the manager's permission or something like that. In most cases, people are going to be fine with it. No one's ever going to raise a stink about okay, it. Okay, so I, I, so I actually did break the law. Technically you did, yeah. But actually, those, that wasn't uh, me. That was some guy that I saw doing that. Uh, yeah, that's and what I kind of figured, yeah. I was using that story just to illustrate this. <laughs> well, and I know that uh, that on the highways, because uh, here's how it works uh, around here, because it happens quite a bit around here, especially with pecans and stuff like that, is that if there's a pecan tree growing in somebody's uh, property and the branches reach over the fence and the pecans fall into the highway right away. I see people all the time standing there with buckets, you know, picking up pecans oh, yeah. and stuff, and they're perfectly legal to do so. Actually, technically they're not, but it's so culturally accepted here that no right. one raises It's, it's not legal, it. but it's, nobody ever stops them. Exactly. The same with blackberry season, too. You'll see dozens of people out collecting the blackberries along the roadsides and so forth in the, in the spring. And it's and I've got people uh, that stop in front of my property, and they dig the uh, the garlic from my ditch. Oh. And uh, and uh, I usually don't say anything. I will. I go out and tell them. I said, don't don't clean it all out. You know, take just what you need. Don't clean the whole thing out though. And fill the hole when you're done. Respect the land. Leave right. no. Tr- and so the right, but like back. you said, the, the important thing to remember is that there are laws covering this. You can't just, uh, you cannot just go out on private property and start feeding your face because it's yeah. against the law. Or public property either, actually. Uh, it's still covered by those laws, the city park, state park, any of those sort of things. Technically, you need whoever is the superintendent of that piece of property. And I can tell you right now, no city park is ever going to give you permission. They're afraid of lawsuits, say you're going to eat something poisonous, die, and your family will sue them. So they will never do that. Right, right. And that's already, that's already happened several times. There's a, uh, there was a golf course there in Houston just recently, right, where, uh, where the guy got himself a whole bowl of the berries from the, one of the shrubs there along there, and he, he ate them and they killed him? No, no mushrooms. Yeah, they're they're really well. They're my, the only toxic berries I can think of. A person would be hard pressed to actually swallow them. They taste pretty bad. Um, but the, there's been numerous cases of people foraging mushrooms and picking the wrong ones and then dying, and usually killing their family in the process too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's everybody try some of these. They're great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that the, the the 
the park would not, uh, they probably wouldn't mind if you popped a few dandelions out of the grass because they they really don't want them. Yeah. But you got to remember that, uh, like Dr. Merriweather said, it's against the law. And also you got to remember most city parks, they don't want weeds. They spray for weeds. So you don't know what's been sprayed on the property. So one of the things when talking to the landowner is you can find out if anything harmful, any pesticides or so forth may be on the plants you're harvesting. Or you may discover this park was built on an old mud pit from an oil field and the whole land is toxic. You know, there's, huh. there's benefits actually talking to the people and finding out before you eat something. Right. So, but at the same time, know, don't let don't let that stop you from going up and asking. Most exactly. they can do is tell you no. I always tell people, go ahead and ask. The most, the most, the most that'll ever happen is somebody will say no. Yeah. The best, you made a new friend. Right. As long as you now, if you, uh, I gotta say that uh, that I've I've known several times of people saying that. Uh, they said, I, I had a bunch of hippies come up to my place, and they wanted to scrounge around looking for stuff, and I told them no way because I knew they were looking for marijuana. <laughs> yeah. But the most they can do is tell you no. So don't be afraid to don't be afraid to go up and ask them. I mean, it's, we're living in a different world than uh, 20 years ago. So it's a, it, it's a good chance for you to get out there and start learning this because, uh, as I was telling you in the – when the show is beginning, that uh, that the time to learn something and figure it out is not when you absolutely gotta have it. Not when you're hungry. Not mm-hmm. when you're not when your life depends on you getting a few extra calories that you're gonna need to keep going. The time to learn it is when you can go out and go looking for stuff. And if you find it, great. And if you don't, you can stop at Burger King or whatever. Uh, <laughs> exactly. The time to look is now, and, and to figure it out to get your skills, develop your skills is now. Find out what the things that you can eat now, and uh, and start learning how to do it. All right, that's the first. That's the first uh, Merriweather rule, and the, you said the second one was respect the land. The whole leave no trace thing, especially if you're, like you say, driving down the road some wild garlic or something in someone's ditch, and you knock on the door and ask if you can dig it up. When you're done, it should look like you had not actually dug anything up. You want to fill the holes. You want to put some leaf litter around. You want to make it look like no one was there. And that's just, it shows respect for the landowner. It shows respect for the land. It makes it more likely that they'll let you come back. So Right. And I'll, I'll tell you another thing about, about taking every single sprig of whatever it is. If you go out there and you take, uh, you take if, there's a, if there's two dozen uh, clusters of garlic grown there and you take all two dozen of them, then that's it. No more is going exactly. to grow there, right? That's going to be yep. the end of it. So take just that, that's what you need, and you'll know that there's going to be some more there when you come back. And that leads into the, the next rule, respect the plant. You want to harvest in a way that the plants, the, there will still be plants in the future for you to eat. Uh, basic rule of thumb of there is never take more than 10% of a colony. Again, like the, right. the garlic and the wild onions. You, there may be a huge mass of it, but only take a little bit. You want to spread when you are harvesting. You want to do it in a way that minimizes the damage to the plant. If you're taking leaves, you want to use a knife, a nice sharp knife, or pruning shears, or something like that. That does a nice clean cut, and then the plant can heal back from that. Um, here in in Texas, especially in the Gulf Coast area, it's very hot and humid a lot of times of the year, 
And a plant, if you just tear some of its bark and a jagged tear, it's very hard for the, hand to, the plant to seal over that again. So fungus will get in there and take over the plant and kill the plant. So even though you just took a few leaves, but you did in a way that made it so the plant couldn't heal from your harvest, it's going to kill the plant. If right. you see only one type of a plant you're after, don't touch it, leave it. You want it to reproduce over and over and produce more. Uh, things like that. But harvest cleanly, only harvest a little bit at a time, especially now. Now being if you have a job and you have an income and you have a refrigerator full of food, just take enough to get a taste for the plant. Don't take the whole thing. Right. The last rule then is either the most important or the least important, depending on your point of view, but respect yourself. And what I mean by that is do not harvest anything dangerous. Don't harvest any, a plant that's toxic, and also don't harvest an edible plant from a toxic area. The, especially in Texas, there's a lot of old oil fields around where there's a lot of old chemicals in the ground where the plants growing on that ground are edible, but because of the contaminants in the soil, they've been rendered toxic. Same with along roads. The, there's no longer a problem with lead from the gas on the plants along the road. The problem is tire dust. Uh, in the rubber that makes up the tires, there's all sorts of heavy metals that are used to strengthen that rubber. As you're driving down the yeah. road, the tires wear down. The dust from it collects on the plants along the, the side of the road there. So, Jeez. Well, let me ask you then. Am I getting in trouble by eating this, the garlic that's in my ditch? Probably not. Well, it depends. Uh, do you live along like the I-10 or do you live along a little backcountry road? No, no. It's a rural road, a little tiny rural road. Yeah, in that case, No. Um, but you know, you always look at you always look at the ditches, or at least uh, on rural the rural roads, not so much on the on the freeways and stuff. But you look at the ditches along rural roads and stuff like that, and you always think, man, this is the this is the most beautiful grass, the, the most lush plants anywhere. Once it hits a fence line, and the cows can get a hold of it and stuff, then it's gone, it's dead. But the ditches are, are beautiful and always filled. Mm-hmm. Uh, so water is running off the road into the ditches, keeping them moist, and there's sunlight there and usually some shade, so they're they're in that best growing condition. What I recommend to people in a situation like that, from the roads, along the roads, your best thing to do is harvest plants to transplant somewhere else or seeds to transplant somewhere else. Um, back in the fall, there's a lot of wild carrots uh, growing. Well, they grow during the summer, then they're gone to seed in the fall, up in like the Tyler area, up there, Crockett and all that, uh, you get some seeds from there and plant those in your yard or some other place, a friend's yard, and grow your own wild carrots or your wild garlic or any number of other things that are growing. Yeah, listen, you just hit on something I think it's, it's very important. I didn't put it in the outline, but it's something that I've always thought about that I've, I've heard from other folks and stuff like that, and that is, well, two things. One, is that, uh, you know, on your travels and trips and everything else, along with not uh, over-harvesting a patch, is that you should be you should be at least making a mental, if not actually writing down where you saw, what you saw, you know, what was there, so that you can have uh, like a grocery book that, uh, that you can, you know, that you can keep adding to. You can say, well, I saw some curl dock in the field over here in this back corner, 
because one of the things that's going to happen is that unless somebody went in there and took every single one, and even if they did, Curl Doc makes about a million and a half seeds. Yeah. And if even one plant ever survived, and there's probably going to be more growing there. So it's probably going to be growing there again next year or whenever you need it. If you'll make a note of where you saw stuff, and it makes it a lot easier for you to go back and get it when you need it. If you need a certain type of plant or something, you just look at your note and say, okay, I know that there's some here or there's some here or here. The other thing is that uh, that folks should – here's what I do is if I see something that is really good and I don't have it, then I'll try and get some seeds or I'll try and get the part of the plant and I'll try and propagate it on my uh, property so that I can have it and because – these these things, a great deal of them are considered weeds. And one of the things that you can you can always, uh, almost always, uh, uh, look forward to from weeds is that they're they're almost guaranteed to grow. You know, if you give them the least bit of a chance, uh, they're going to grow. So they're they're easy to grow on their own without a, a lot of help from you. And uh, if you can get some started in places, then you're that much better. You know, in, in adding to the possible possibility of you going and harvesting some edible wild plants. Let me give you a little tip on doing that, something I found that works beautifully, is if you have a backyard or a piece of land where you can do something like this, scratch up the earth, get some bare soil exposed, stick a branch in it that has some places for birds to perch on it, you know, just a four or five foot tall branch, and put some sort of small water bath, a bird bath there so there's some water, Birds will come, they'll drink the water, they'll sit in the branch, they'll poop. Their poop is filled with seeds, and you'll get all sorts of different sort of plants coming up. Then as the plants grow, identify which ones are edible, which ones aren't. If it's not edible, get rid of it. The ones that are, continue to grow. Take the stick, move it to a new spot, and start the whole process over. I've ended you know what? I never, I never thought about that, but you can get uh, you can get a bag of bird seed for you can no, buy like a 20-pound no, bag for 50 bucks, right? No, don't ruin them. Then you'll just have the same stuff that's in the bird seed. The bird seed is sunflowers, and, and, it's, and it's not plants that are designed for your environment. Oh, I see it's, what you're saying. Don't don't so, don't scratch the dirt under the bird feeder, but put some uh, yeah, some yeah. water there for them to. Okay. Yeah, you want you, you want them to drink, and you want to have them someplace to perch, but you do not want any bird feeders around because then the, okay. the weeds you get are going to be from those seeds. You want them to be eating the berries and the stuff all around the neighborhood, and then. Again, pooping in your yard and right. getting the weeds from that. Right, but they can also uh, find these, find the seeds, find the plants when they're making seeds. And a lot of these, almost all of the the seeds, uh, I mean, almost all the plants, it seems to me, especially for the weeds and stuff, make a huge amount of seeds, and they're really easy to gather. Yep, yeah, that's one of their their survival traits. They don't have anyone. They don't have humans protecting them like domestic plants have. So they want to produce millions of babies. They produce lots and lots and lots of seeds, and knowing only a few of them are actually going to to grow. It's like the whole Bible verse: some lands on fertile soil, some falls on rocks, some falls here. It's what's going on. So yeah, right. You know what? Too much of a problem. That's our. Uh, that's the code that Appleseed lives by. That's why we. That's why we call our our uh, organization, the Appleseed Project, because uh, we're going out and we're spreading the message. And 
And just like Johnny Appleseed, uh, you know, I try to tell folks that uh, that just because they, they spread the message and they don't get any immediate return on on having folks say, uh, yeah, I came to the event because I heard you tell me about it, such and such, that it doesn't work that way. It works the, way, the same way that Johnny Appleseed did. You know, he went out and he... He slung out the seeds. He didn't. He didn't plant the seed and then lovingly and tenderly care for it and water it and and have it grow so that he could be sitting right there underneath that apple tree when a when a ripe piece of fruit dropped into his mouth. He didn't have time for that because he had a mission and uh, he put the seeds out and some of them grew and some of them didn't. And he never. I'm sure that he probably he can never really know if a seed that he planted was ever going to grow or not. I mean, he just had to take it on faith, and that's what we have to do. We have to take it on faith. Exactly. Now, I carry, uh, I carry a uh, uh, a canning a canning jar, and it's a uh, one pint canning jar. But I've got it filled up with uh, Bermuda seeds, and they're just uh, they're like pepper almost. And what I do is every time I feed a bale of hay to the cows, I'll feed it to them, and they will. And they'll eat it down to just about to the dirt. But then I'll sprinkle those seeds. It's got holes in the top like a, like a pepper shaker. Mm-hmm. I'll just sprinkle those seeds out on top. And uh, and within a year or so, I'll have a nice thick patch of uh, coastal Bermuda there. The native yeah. native Bermuda, not coastal, native Bermuda. Okay. The native works a lot better for me and for the cows. The, the native, the, it's the sweetest. It's the most guaranteed to grow. That's not going to feed a lot of cows because it's so small, but it's guaranteed to grow where any other plants won't. So, so I try and I try and salt the ground with uh, Bermuda seeds wherever I go. But you could do the same thing with with any of the plants that you select. You could carry your little shaker thing and and just dose. And I imagine they I imagine they sell uh, edible wild plant seeds, don't they? Some places do. Uh, occasionally, you'll find things on eBay. There's a few nurseries out there. Uh, over in Tomball, Texas, there's a nursery called Arbor's Gate that occasionally has wild plants like burdock and uh, wine cups, different things like that. Uh, there's a website, bountifulgardens.org, that also occasionally has uh, different wild edible plants. They sell them as uh, ground cover, a to refertilize soil. That's one of the things a lot of weeds do. They'll go into damaged soil and bring up the nutrients that have leached away. And normally you would grow these crops and then just uh, cut them down and drop them on the land and they would rot away and return the minerals to the top of the uh, soil. But they sell a number of different things. That's uh, bountifulgardens.org. Wow. And... uh... Let me ask you this. Uh, there's, um, uh, I'm sure that most of the people are already thinking that things are weird to eat, like dandelions and stuff like that. Oh, listen, while I'm thinking about that, that reminds me. Because I, I tried to tell people this when we're we, – Dr. Merriweather, we we do what we call telling the story. And that is we'll, we'll, we'll have folks come out for a two-day rifle marksmanship course where we teach the absolute best uh, – Fundamentals, a rifle marksmanship course in the nation, the absolute best. And while they're there, we talk to them about how the nation got started. And and since we only have uh, a couple of hours to do this, we we can't uh, we can't tell them about every single day or everything that happened. But 
we can tell them about the events of April 19, 1775. And one part of the story is that uh, there was a woman, uh, after the after the British were getting heavily pounded uh, on a, a long battle road, they were marching 20 miles back to Boston, and they were just getting pounded by the colonists. And a lot of them were, instead of instead of doing the the the, the royal regular English soldier thing, which was to march in closed ranks, even though they're being shot at by hundreds of people. A lot of them didn't do that. Well, some of them broke and ran and took off. And there were six soldiers that took off and ran, and they ended up on this lady's property that's uh, called Mother uh, Bathrick. And uh, they ended up surrendering themselves to her because they figured if they could they could find somebody to surrender themselves to, then once they were uh, then once they were prisoners, they were less likely to be shot and killed. But the uh, the story describes Mother Bathrick as an older woman, and that she was out uh, gathering dandelion grains and other stuff for her supper to eat. And a lot of people tell the story saying, "Well, she was so poor she couldn't afford anything else." And I I I told I try and tell people, "No, no, no." They the people back then, it's not that they couldn't afford anything. It's just that why would you go and buy something when it was growing in your yard? Exactly. And dandelion greens are some of those nutritious greens, again, out there. They're considered to be almost superfoods in that they're high in vitamins, minerals, and protein. And you can do things with the, the leaves. You can do things with the root. You can do things with the flower. You can do things with the stalk, the, the flower stem. It's all edible, and it's all free. And there probably weren't that many grocery stores around them you know, back then. They could get their salt, their beans, their flour, some sugar, some coffee, but everything else, they were growing themselves in their gardens. Yeah, there was no, there's no whole earth you could go down and you could get a bag full of fresh grains. I mean, if you needed some fresh grains, then you either you grew it or you harvested it from the wild or, or you did without. And so it wasn't, it wasn't that she was poor. It's just that that was one of the things on most people's list to, to do. To go out and gather some of the stuff, some of the, the the plants that God had already put there for them, and use those uh, you know to supplement their meals. So I, I I wanted to get a chance. I remember, remembered. I wanted to make sure that I that I brought that out because it never fails. People are saying, "Well, she was so poor, she had to do this." But it wasn't so. It wasn't the poor about it. It was the smart uh, the smart colonists, you know, taking care of themselves. In fact, a number of the weeds here were vegetable plants over in Europe, and they were here and escaped, like the sow thistle that we talked about earlier. That is considered a garden vegetable over in Europe. It's, a, it's, a, it's like spinach to them. But over here, it just escaped, and now it's in every ditch and house foundation and so forth, and everyone thinks it's a horrible weed. Right, and, uh, and while we're talking about that, what about the Jerusalem artichokes? Ah, that's a fascinating one. That's I, I, that's one of my favorite wild edibles just because of the, uh, the chemistry and the cycle and all the things going into it. Let me let me step back a second here and mention okay. it's real easy to get vitamins and minerals and antioxidants, things like that from wild edible plants. The tricky thing to get is calories. It can be very difficult to get calories just from plants. The calorie sources in plants are going to be things like seeds, nuts, and tubers. 
the part of the plant that the plant uses to reproduce itself. As it takes all this energy, stores it in a small package, and then at some other point, this package grows into a new plant until the plant has lots of leaves. It can't do photosynthesis. It has to rely on the food inside its seed, its tuber, its nut. Jerusalem artichokes are an amazing plant. They were actually started, the earliest records were over on the, in the New England area you know, thousands of years ago. And they were so good that they just worked as a trade good, at least my understanding of the, the history I've heard of them and studied them, is they were a, a trade good by the Native Americans and they, they pretty much went all across North America. Now what's interesting about them is they produce these big tubers, big starch-filled tubers that you can treat just like a potato. The problem, though, that starch, of the plant, they grow during the summer and, and, and produce these tubers. So in the fall, the tubers are ready. They go through the winter, and then the next spring, the, the plant starts growing. Uh, in the fall, at the end of the growing season, these tubers are big, filled with starch, but the starch is not actually something humans can digest. It's a very complex, molecular, molecularly complex starch called inulin. The human body cannot break it down. The bacteria in our gut can break it down, and they can get nutrients from it, but we cannot get energy. We cannot get calories from the Jerusalem artichokes in the fall. The thing about the Jerusalem artichokes, then, though, is the plant itself can't get energy from it either, from that inulin. So after the first frost, it triggers some enzymes to start working inside the Jerusalem artichoke tuber that start breaking down that inulin and just make it into regular starch, like a potato starch. So about March, February, March, that time of year, the starch has been converted from inulin that, we, that humans cannot digest into something that they can. It's also about the time when the Native Americans, they were running out of their food for the, you know, the meat, the calorie sources that they had packed around and they had stored for the winter. So right. at the time running out of calories, the, the meat calories, this plant was available for them. And to add to the whole cycle, circle, amazing miracle of this plant is the Native Americans didn't actually have to harvest it because the little pack rats loved the tubers. And they would go and they would dig up all the tubers and they'd hide them in their little trees and so forth. And so come March, come February, late February, March, the Native Americans would be looking around, seeing where the pack rats are going, follow them back to their den, collect all the tubers from them. In return, they'd give the the pack rat a little bit of tobacco as a thank you. I guess this mouse got you know one last smoke before it died of starvation. But they'd take the tubers then, and so they didn't even have to expend any energy really to get them other than to follow the mice to their, their areas. And usually they'd follow, follow them earlier in the winter so they knew at the time, you know, come March, when to just go straight to the tree and get the tubers. So it's just a fascinating thing the way it all works out. When they're running out of one food, this other food became available to them. Right, and I think it's interesting too that uh, you know that you that you do mention that while the Indians, uh, while they were stealing from the pack rats, that they were still practicing, uh, uh, you know, green techniques because they would leave something else there for the pack rat here uh, to eat because he couldn't starve them all to death, or you would uh, you would lose your harvesters. Uh, and the pack rats would dig up everything. There were always tubers left behind that the pack rats didn't dig up, and those are pretty new, new right. plants. But that got me to thinking, and I can't remember if we were talking about this or not. But you know, I've got a couple of friends who are uh, who are diabetics, 
And, uh, you know, one of, if you're an American, usually one of the staples that you live by is potatoes. And uh, and diabetics, uh, you know, it's one of the things they're forbidden to eat is, you know, mm-hmm. high starch uh, foods and stuff like that. I wonder if they couldn't, uh, if they couldn't, uh, uh, you know, satisfy their, their urge for mashed potatoes with the uh, Jerusalem artichoke tubers that are harvested after the frost. Or, or before the frost. But, yeah, that's exactly correct. In fact, that's a recommended food for diabetics is the, the young tubers from the fall up until even about Christmas time. They're still going to be – they'll have that, that sweet flavor of a cooked potato but they won't have that massive dump of, of calories, of, of starch into their bloodstream, of sugar. So they, they will get the taste, but they won't have that sudden spike in their blood chemistry. Well, well let's talk about, since, since, we're, since we're already so close to it, let's talk about uh, some of the edible wild plants that, uh, that you can harvest or actually substitute uh, for or are used in medicinal ways and uh, and – making sure that everybody understands that uh, Dr. Merriweather is not a doctor, medical doctor, giving advice on you to, to uh, use uh, medi- plants as medicines for any way or anything like that. Uh, but can you give us some uh, some of the, the ways that, uh, that edible wild plants are used uh, for medicinal purposes? Sure. And like I said, I have to couch this very carefully. The FDA actually cracks down. There's been a number of bloggers and so forth that have gone to jail for giving medical advice when they're not a doctor. So what I will be talking about is actually the traditional uses, how they were used traditionally. Uh, Right, what people people have done in the past, not what you're advocating. Yeah. So let's go back to curled dock, for instance. Uh, We talked about that earlier. That's found out in the fields, the rosette shape with the spear-shaped leaves. The root of that traditionally was used... Uh, they would roast it and chop it up, and you would eat it, or they would steam it. They, w- they would cook it in some manner, and upon eating it, it would help, traditionally, they believed, to stop diarrhea, which I find somewhat amusing because then if you... That's strange, isn't it? Foods, <laughs> pardon? That's strange, right? Because we just well, had a discussion on the other end of it uh, exactly. causing diarrhea. So if you eat the seeds without taking the brand coating off first, you're going to end up with diarrhea. But then traditionally, you could go to the root and cure it. Uh, there's another plant out there. Uh, this time of year, it's very prevalent. It's called betony, B-E-T-O-N-Y. And it is in the mint family. And there's actually an old Italian saying that if you have a cold, sell your coat and buy betony. Uh, over in Europe, it was considered a medicinal herb that was grown in gardens. Uh, over here, it escaped and it runs rapid. It's somewhat invasive. If you've ever planted a mint in the ground, yeah. you can see how it will spread. Yeah, uh, I only anyway. put my mint inside containers because it's uh, it's awfully aggressive if it gets out of the container. Exactly. But the betony, you can make a tea out of it, and it's a nice. It's a. It's not as strong as a peppermint tea, but again, traditionally over in Europe, that they would smoke it uh, when they had colds or head congestion. This was before they brought tobacco back from the New World. So to smoke it, they didn't have pipes. They would just have a charcoal briquette and sprinkle some of the leaves onto the burning briquette and then inhale the smoke that would come off it. 
And in that manner, they would inhale it, get it into their lungs, and would help break the congestion. There's another one out there. It's a small white daisy called fleabane. And the Native Americans would take just the, the white flower and let it dry. And when they had a head cold, they would use it as snuff. They would inhale some of the dried uh, flower up into their nose, and this would cause a massive sneezing fit. And the sneezing would be so vigorous that you would basically just blow the congestion out of your head. Wow. It is incredibly painful. Wow. I, I do not recommend it. <laughs> you sound so, like you've tried this. Have you tried it? Oh, uh, everyone has to, well, I shouldn't say everyone, but okay. yeah, you know, I don't want to say it. <laughs> and it, 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 it is brutal. <laughs> You're just sneezing, the, the worst sneezes you've ever had, but it, it blows oh, you stuff. Oh, man. Oh. I wish you wouldn't have told me that because now I'm going to have to try it. <laughs> well, good luck with it. I have a really large nose, so maybe I got more than the average person, but uh, yeah. <laughs> There's uh, four cuts, bad cuts. The uh-huh. Spanish moss. Spanish moss is a. Is, some research has been done on it uh, that makes it think makes some people think that it might work as a biostat or something that prevents bacteria from continuing to grow. It won't kill them, uh, but traditionally it's thought that it, it prevents them from reproducing, and it was used as a as a, a wound clotting agent or a, a, not so much a clotting agent, but just as a bandage. Uh, so if yes. if a person, and you're not suggesting this, but traditionally if a person had found themselves, say, back in the uh, back in the French and Indian Wars, or, or better yet, down in the, uh, in the Seminole Indian Wars, and they found themselves in a grove of uh, Spanish, a grove of trees with Spanish moss hanging, and they got a saber cut on their arm, then they could grab some of the Spanish moss and pack it, uh, pack it on top of the the wound to Correct. help uh, stop the or to help uh, uh, the clotting. Would, yeah, it would it would prevent it. theoretically, traditionally, it re- reduced the incidence of infection. So the just the direct pressure is what stopped the bleeding, but then keeping it that in the the Spanish moss is actually quite acidic, and so that acid is believed traditionally, not wanting to get to the FDA on my my case, right. it would prevent the bacteria from reproducing. So you're, you're going to have some bacteria there, but if it's not reproducing, it's not going to cause an infection. Now, I, so I both, know that uh, one of the uses uh, for Spanish moss is uh, is in lieu of corn cobs and uh, things <laughs> like that. Uh, I know that yes. people use it in that fashion. Uh uh, and once again, I, I would still say that uh, that this is just uh, anecdotal uh, information being passed on because we don't want somebody to uh, to turn up with a rash on their hiney and point to either yeah. one of us, right? <laughs> that is correct. In fact, let me warn you about another plant that is commonly used, and that is the Indian mullein or Indian tobacco. It's this. Uh, oh yeah, it's got a really big soft leaf. Yeah, green, grayish, fuzzy leaf, very soft, uh, velvety looking. It looks like it'd be very good toilet paper. <laughs> Unfortunately, those little hairs break off and stick in the skin and become quite irritating. So uh, I've never, I've, I've never used it for that. Now I remember when I was a Boy Scout, somebody 
somebody came up with a great idea of trying to smoke some of it, like as in like a cigar or something. And yeah, uh, I think yeah, every Boy Scout has probably done that actually. So. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't think that we ever did it, but they kept talking about it. We're gonna have to find some of this and smoke it. <laughs> and that's one of the names was Indian tobacco, but there's there's a lot of plants out there that were traditionally smoked. Uh, if you're familiar with the name Yule Gibbons, he was the famous wild food expert from back in the 70s. He used to smoke a mixture of the bay and sassafras and peppermint in his pipe. He said it smelled like he was smoking a candy shop. But each one was supposed to help fight emphysema and chest issues because he'd smoke. Half the time he'd smoke the regular tobacco and the other time he'd, he'd smoke this mixture hoping that it would heal the damage done by the tobacco. Right. And listen, I came upon that uh, that book cover uh, a couple of weeks ago whenever I was surfing your site, and I'll tell you that it made it was like an instant flashback uh, <laughs> to when I was a kid because you know that was one of my he was one of my heroes back then, and I, I read that book from cover to cover over and over, mm-hmm. and I tried all of this stuff over and over, and uh, I just and that's. That's kind of where I got my start was was from uh, from Yule Gibbons. It's, he was he's a master, and the way he writes about it is so beautiful. It's not just dry. This is how you cook it. Da, 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 da. He he does wonderful things with it, and he describes it in such rich language that reading it, your mouth just starts drooling over these things that you would never consider actually <laughs> eating in real life. You know, these weeds in your yard, some of you are just craving because he wrote about them. Now, he he was the sort of guy that uses butter and garlic and wine and cream and you know, kind of a Julia Child sort of approach rather than yeah. some raw Buddhist sort of thing. So if you're looking for a vegan fare with just you know no no fats, no added oil or anything like that, his recipes are not for you. Right, and... And I still got to tell you though that 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 while reading it, my mouth would be watering. But when I actually tried it, and of course I was just a kid, but when I actually tried it, I was very uh, found that there was a, a big difference between the descriptions that I was reading and the taste I was putting in my mouth, hmm. uh, because I wasn't uh, I certainly wasn't the expert that he was. You know, when I found myself trying to eat pine cones and stuff like that. Uh, uh, I wasn't the I wasn't the expert at, at making it work. Well, what else? Uh, is there anything else that comes off that you can think of off the top of your head for uh, for medicinal purposes? Uh, let's see. Oh, elderberry. Traditionally, that uh, and in fact, elderberry extract the, from the berries and the flowers both can be bought over in Europe as medicine, over the counter medicine. And over there, they've shown that the elderberry extract, a particular molecule in it, actually helps stimulate the immune system to fight infections. So it's recommended in cold and uh, flu medicines over in Europe. You can buy it here in Walgreens and so forth, the elderberry extract and their their natural products sort of area, but I don't believe they can really make any claims as to how good it may work actually against your, right, your, and this is also one of the plants that uh, that you could probably very easily find to experiment with by looking up and down your street because this is still a bush that I, I know it, 
they don't use it as much anymore, but historically it was used a great deal in landscaping and stuff. Yep. Yeah, and it, it prefers soil to be a bit moister than what a lot of people have their yards nowadays. So it's not exactly right. a water-friendly plant, but in wet areas along drainage ditches and so forth, it grows in the big thickets. And I, actually have I, grew, up in, I grew up in northwest Houston that uh, had uh, had a great deal of moisture mm-hmm. uh, in the soils all around there. And I remember uh, elderberry uh, bushes everywhere. makes it a very beautiful blossom. Mm-hmm. And then... Uh, and then I never tried it, but you certainly hear people, uh, some of the older folks, talking about making up elderberry wine. Yep. Yeah, my grandfather did that, dandelion wine and elderberry wine. He also made I wonder if the stuff. wine would have the same... Uh, it should. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's it would not going to be as concentrated. Uh, mm-hmm. I can give you my father's elderberry uh, elixir recipe, if you'd like. It's pretty simple. Okay. He would take okay. just a, a quart... Uh, canning jar, you know, the mason jar. Fill mm-hmm. it one-third with the elderberry flowers. Pour in, well, add two tablespoons of sugar, a shot of triple sec, and then top it off, fill it to the the, the brim with vodka. Seal it up, shake it, set it on a shelf. Every day for about three weeks, he would shake it, and then filter it out through cheesecloth, filter out the, the elderberry flowers, and put the resulting alcohol into another bottle, cap it, and then whenever he or anyone in the family had a cold or a flu, we'd get a few shots of that. And I'm not sure how much help it really gave to the flu, but it did. It sure made you feel better about having a cold, right? Exactly, yeah. (laughs) And and to be honest, it's not a real great taste. It has a a unique flavor. To me, it it brings back memories. I still have a jar of it here in my, my cupboard. And when I take it, if I'm, you know, have a cold or bronchitis or whatever, some screw up that got me sick, I think just psychologically it plays a big role too. Because suddenly I'm back in my grandfather's kitchen on his farm, you know, family's there. There's usually pork, and all these all these memories come back for me. But there's also the actual chemicals theoretically that are helping stimulate the immune system. So. It probably well, works you know, there's a lot. There's a lot that there's a lot. There's so much information. There's more information I think that's been forgotten by humans than than what we actually know now. At least in the form of taking care of ourselves and stuff like that. So I wouldn't put I wouldn't put the fact that this could help you uh, up on the shelf and forget about it. But you know, we we just don't know. And I think a lot of times when people say. Well, this has been, you know, we don't have any uh, uh, scientific information that this does any good or not. Then, uh, you know, I got to tell you, sometimes I feel like uh, that researchers and stuff uh, that are hired by companies to do this, that sometimes they've got uh, they've got some other dogs in the hunt, and uh, because you hear about uh, information being skewed all the time, but. I have the same kind of uh, tale, but mine was just a tiny bit different. Mine was uh, uh, whiskey and sugar and lemon, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was uh, for coughing yep. and uh, coughing and sore throats. Now I know that that works just because because alcohol is a 
a natural cost, not natural, it's just a, a used cost suppressant. Matter of fact, when uh, when I was working with a long range reconnaissance patrol unit, we carried, a, I carried, I didn't let them carry it, I carried a small flask of whiskey. And uh, if anybody started coughing, they got a shot of the whiskey because it would uh, suppress the cough. Sure. But I still remember drinking that. My grandmother would make it up, and I would take a drink. It was the absolute most horrible, foul-tasting <laughs> stuff I could think of. But I'm, I've made it up a few times myself uh, since then and and taken a drink of it just because it reminds me of, uh, of standing down in my grandmother's cellar and having her mix me up a you know a tablespoon of it. Yep. I think the mind is a very good tool for healing our bodies, and the more happy thoughts we have, the better off we well, are. You know, people were healing themselves for thousands of years before uh, Rexall and uh, CVS and everything else. So, so somebody had to know something. You know, they were healing themselves for a long time before before somebody with initials before their name came along and said, this is what you got to do, right? I mean, sure. uh, <laughs> and, and what else is there? What did, what, did the, uh, what did folks traditionally been using for, like, aspirin? Oh, the aspirin, that, that came from the willow trees. The bark of the willow tree and also the cottonwood has the natural precursor to aspirin in it. In fact, Bayer, the company that came out with the first aspirin, uh, what they did, well, the, the molecule in the willow tree, in the bark, it's quite acidic, and so it would take care of the fevers, it would take care of the headache, but a lot of times it would cause an upset stomach. So what they did is they took this molecule and they added a buffering agent, something that would neutralize the acid. And technically, from a chemical point, they methylated it and got rid of the acid and made an ester, but they had this buffered aspirin or, or bufferin, basically. Right. So, bufferin. But, but, yeah, exactly. And it's to the, the highest concentration of this chemical is in the, the young uh, the branches, about the thickness of a pencil. Uh, collect them really this time of year after the leaves have fallen or just before the leaves have started budding again. The chemical is going to be in the highest concentration, but it's going to be there any time of the year. So you just take a bunch of those small branches, pencil thickness, cut them, let them dry, air dry, and then whenever you have a fever, upset stomach, swelling, the sort of things you would traditionally use aspirin to, to work on, you'll take your sharp knife and you'll just scrape the bark and scrape out about a, a, a tablespoonful, heat it up in some hot water, let it simmer for a good 10 minutes. Traditionally, that's what they would do. And then drinking it. it when you drink it, I've tried this, it tastes like you've just chewed an aspirin. It is not <laughs> a pleasant taste, but that's that's the medicine that you're drinking. And then, and it, it, it it's kind of harsh on the stomach. But well, know, traditionally, they've they, they, that's one of the ones that science backs up. That's where they got the aspirin from. The FDA can come after me for saying that. Right. But something to remember is that, and now, of course, the way I tried to get around it here is uh, is when I find aspirin on sale in bulk lots, you know, I'll buy it. So I've got, I've got thousands of tablets. Uh, yeah. 
stock away, not just for for use, but also for barter. Because you get uh, you get a person or a child sick with a fever, and you don't have anything to give them, then you're going to be in trouble because that fever doesn't have to go very high before before it boils their brains out, and uh, and that's it. There's there have been millions of people who've been killed by fevers that. Uh, Probably didn't have to be if they would have, if they could have gotten a hold of some type of a blood thinning agent like aspirin, and they could have gotten that uh, blood to circulate faster and to take some of that heat out of their body. So knowing stuff like this is very important because if you're somewhere and you can't get uh, you can't get some aspirin, then if you can find a willow tree in this, and like I said, this is this is uh, uh, this is information. From what people have done before, not information that, uh, that Dr. Mary Werther and I are suggesting, but what people have done before is they've taken the uh, the willow and used the bark from the willow to create an aspirin-like uh, uh, compound that they could use to thin the blood and get the fever down. Because if you can't keep the fever down, then you're going to be in bad shape. And sometimes. Sometimes you can't do stuff like uh, dropping somebody in a in a cold thing of water if they're already sick. You know, you gotta you gotta be able to think. You gotta be able to use what you have at hand. And if you don't know what you have at hand, then then you're in bad shape. So you need to figure out the things that you can that you can use to to eat or for medicinal purposes and stuff like that. Because we may not always have a uh, a CVS or or something like that around. You just don't know. For for people to think that something like the Great Depression can never happen again, better think again because uh, just a couple of years ago it happened in uh, Argentina, and uh, and I'm telling you that uh, it can happen anywhere. Argentina isn't it wasn't a third world nation, all right. Uh, so it can happen anywhere, and you've got to know this information. You've got to be able to. You've got to be able to use everything that that you can use uh, in order to provide for yourself and for your loved ones. What are what are some of the weirdest plants that uh, that you've come across for for eating, or or plants that folks may look at or think about and go, well, "There's no way in Hades I'd ever eat that." Before I answer that question, I want to finish up one other thing on the aspirin and and that sort okay. of thought. Uh, it doesn't take a great depression. All it takes is for you to lose your job, and suddenly money becomes very precious. So the more things you can get for free, the more money you'll have left over for the other things that you cannot get from nature. So just something to keep in mind. Even now, if you lose your job and you just have a headache, you could suffer through it, or you could theoretically try some of the willow. And so Absolutely. you're not on the aspirin. It doesn't take a big disaster. It just takes a disaster for you. Also, I also want to yeah, call, because call some people. Willow is willow is is it's everywhere. Yeah. I mean, if once you learn to identify it, uh, then then you're going to start seeing it everywhere. You'll see it everywhere. You'll see it. You'll see it all over. Yeah. And I also want to warn about giving kids aspirin because there is that the same with willow. The chemical in aspirin and the chemicals in willow are pretty much identical, except for the one methyl group. And what is it, the raised bear syndrome or something? There's a real bad thing that can potentially happen to kids when they're given aspirin. So you want to be careful with that. It's just because it's a natural product does not make it safer than aspirin for children. Right. And it's and the 
it's the same thing that aspirin. You'll see the warnings on the aspirin bottles uh, on giving it to young children. It's the same thing with the the willow bark. It's the same. It's like the doc said. It's the same chemical, and it's going to produce the same bad results. So make sure you're make sure you you've got your whole head in the game when you're doing this stuff. You make sure you have no other option left at that point with the child. Right, and uh, that's the same thing I tell folks when they're when they're. uh, I've got tons of uh, I got tons of sutures and everything else, but I I tell you what, man, I I don't use them. I don't use them unless there's no other way, uh, because uh, you you. You mix something up and you drink it, uh, and it uh, and it causes a problem. Is no different than uh, sewing some, something up inside you, right? Mm-hmm. So make sure that uh, that this stuff is for you. At least the medicinal stuff is for you to use when there's no other uh, there's no other way around it. Okay. Exactly. All right. Uh, you think anything uh, off your head about the uh, about the bizarre uh, sure. plant uh, people a, can uh, eat? A real good one. Uh, there's a plant called American Beautyberry. Uh, you'll find it like in the Sam Houston Forest and the Davy Crockett Forest, and up in Austin you'll find it. In the fall, it has these clusters of bright magenta berries, uh, and everyone thinks they're they're poisonous. And I'll be walking down the up in the the woodlands, some people have some on their sidewalks that I know, and I'll, I'll nibble on those as I'm walking by there. And everyone freaks out because they've all been told that told that the American Beauty berry berries are are toxic, and that they think I'm suddenly going to go into spasms and die. And it's actually the American Beauty berry. The the berries raw, they're they're okay. There's nothing special about them. They're they're a good nibble. I kind of do it more for shock value. But if you make a jelly or a jam out of them, they're Absolutely amazing. It's like the champagne of jams and jellies. But well, just the color of bright magenta freaks people when out. When I was younger, I was always confused those with sumac. Okay, the sumac has the red berries clustered at the top in kind of a spike or pyramid, and it's an upright tree sort of thing. The American beauty berry, it's a woodland shrub. And the berries, again, foaming clusters. The berries themselves are fairly small, about the size of, of popcorn, unpopped popcorn, and big clusters of them, maybe the size of a tennis ball, and multiple clusters along the ends of the branches, and they droop down. But they're a bright purple, magenta sort of color. And there's really no other berry out there that looks that color. But everyone that's ever seen me eat them freaks out. They think they've always been told that they're poisonous. Right, and the sumac berries, they, uh, they, 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 they don't look the same. I mean, it's got there that uh, it has that almost like flame-shaped right. The sumac berry, and and they're almost furry. They're furry until just like one point where they don't Mm -hmm. have the fur or anything on them anymore. But but when I was younger, before I was reading the Yule Gittins and stuff, I always I was always confusing those with. The American Beautyberry with sumac. So still in the back of my head, whenever I see a sumac, I automatically am thinking poison, poison. <laughs> nope. The sumac berries—they make a real good pink lemonade sort of substitute. Uh, you want to get them when they're ripe. The easiest way I find is to just go up to one of the trees and lick it, or the berries, and 
just kind of lick it, which again is partially shock value. But if it has that nice tangy taste, the berries are ready. The chemical that gives it the flavor is actually on the outside of the berries, so you don't want to wash them off because otherwise you'll lose all the chemical. But you take four or five of these clusters and drop them in a pitcher of water overnight, then filter it out again through some cheesecloth to take out the, the plant bits and the dust and the spiders and all that sort of thing. And what you're left with is this neat pink lemonade sort of flavor. The other thing you can do with it, if you ever go to Mediterranean stores or Middle Eastern stores or in the seasoning section, they actually sell sumac as a seasoning. If you collect the berries and dry them and put them in one of the pepper mills, like a you know, little kitchen pepper grinder sort of thing, and then you, you grind it and release the, the ground sumac powder, it's kind of like paprika but tangier. It's really good on fish and chicken, things like that. Wow, lamb. it's very good on lamb. Mm. Well, I know that the uh, the uh, the American Beauty berries. I guess they they may must have taken a, usually more of an uh, an acid type soil to grow in because I would always see them growing uh, in pine groves and stuff like that. Right. But I also have uh, I also have them by the millions uh, where I live now. Then the soil isn't acidic, but uh, they're growing by the millions here and. Uh, Try as you might, it's hard to wipe them out. Yep, but they're they're good, and especially uh, one of my students' uh, class a uh, couple of classes ago brought me a big jar of the the jelly, and it was everything. It was so good. <laughs> Unfortunately, my kids found it and they ate it all. So, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that on my list of things to do this year is American Beauty Berry Jam because. Because man, I, there's nothing I have to do except harvest them. Because, yep. like I said, in 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 certain uh, in certain parts of the uh, of the woods uh, close to me, there there is no negotiating the woods for <laughs> the beauty berries. I mean, it's it's just solid. So so I have I have a uh, a huge amount of uh, of berries that I could pick and use. And uh, I'm going to do that. I'm going to I'm going to go ahead and do some of that because because I have so many of them. And if mm-hmm. any of you guys, uh, if, any, if you all need any, uh, next time you're here at uh, the Davila Range, I will be glad to load your truck up with them. <laughs> Let me give you another use for the American Beauty Berry. This time, the leaves. The leaves are not edible, but there are three chemicals in there that have been found to be really good mosquito repellent. Uh, military testing, U.S. Army testing has found it to be about equal to DEET, D-E-E-T, as far as keeping mosquitoes away. The, no uh, still test, Yeah. Um, side note. Without the harmful the, side effects of DEET? Well, they don't know yet. That's still being tested. Again, just because it's a natural product does not mean it's completely benign. And Cobra venom is natural product. It is not benign. Well, uh, okay. What I, but I use DEET anyway, so I can I can certainly I would certainly be willing to grab some of these leaves. I guess you can crumple them up and uh, rub them yeah, on. Them up, yeah, rub them on your clothing, on your hat, uh, things like that. Stick some like in your pants cuffs, things like that. Your boot laces to help keep things away. The how long it lasts? They're still testing. And my, from personal experience, it works good against mosquitoes. It does not seem to do much against wood ticks and other arachnid-type creatures. 
So right. sugars and wood ticks, they still come after you. So beet is superior in that form. I haven't but found anything that works on ticks and sugars. Maybe uh, like a half-inch thick coating of sulfur. Uh, and I think that's just because they can't dig through it before you get home. Yeah. But uh, other than that, I don't know much that stops, especially sugars, mm-hmm. uh, from getting on you and uh, and becoming your partner. Yeah. But but certainly with uh, mosquitoes, I would certainly prefer this to... I remember reading about uh, the explorers in the New World uh, being so... Uh, being so devastated by mosquitoes, even to the point of uh, anemia, mm-hmm. that they took pine sap, pine pitch, and covered themselves in pine pitch. Yep. And uh, I'm thinking, man, that, that anything, there's got to be anything in the world that you could do besides putting pine pitch on your body uh, would have to, I'd have to try that before the pine pitch, but... Uh, I mean, certainly, uh, I'm certainly going to try this. I mean, I'm, like I said, I've got uh, plenty of them, uh, plenty of them nearby. I'm going to give it a try. Yep. So it's definitely worth trying, like you said. And I've, I've experimented with some, and I've been in some pretty mosquito-infested places, and it it, it reduces them. I once had was completely bite-free, but it was easily bearable. Well, we're getting towards uh, right here at the end of the show. And uh, I wanted to tell folks, again, that you've got a great uh, webpage at uh, www.foragingtexas.com. I mean, it's a, it's a really fantastic website. And then you teach courses uh, pretty much year-round, right? Yeah. Yep. I and uh, they can get that off. by going to your site. Yep, I have all the open classes. And classes... It's always worth checking fairly often because different classes will be added as they appear. A lot of times, a private group they'll have me out, but they'll to, to bring the cost down some. They'll they'll have uh, open it up to public and have three or four spots open where other people can come and join, and away we go. All right. Well, listen, we'd love to have you. Uh, we'd love to have you come back on again because. We you know, barely scratched the surface tonight. Would you would you consider coming on in a you know in three or four months, coming back on and sure. talk to us some more about it? Oh, definitely. All right. Be my pleasure. Well, Doc, thanks a million for uh, sparing some of your free time to come on the show and and let folks know that uh, there is a wealth of uh, available edible wild plants uh, in the fields and the streams and forests and and right there on their block. And uh, be sure and go to the doc's website at uh, foragingtexas.com. And don't just don't wait until you have to use this. Uh, figure it out now. Doc, thanks again for coming on the show. God bless you and yours, and uh, we'll see you back uh, in just a few months. Blessings to you, too. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. Uh, we sure appreciate that. And like I told you guys, don't. it only takes a few minutes. Go and locate uh, locate some of these uh, plants and uh, start learning how to use them. And uh, we'll see you guys uh, next Thursday, 17 Central. Uh, good night, everybody. We'll talk to you uh, next
Yeah. 